The Incomparable Number 417 July 2018 Welcome back, everybody, to The Incomparable. The Summer of Marvel rolls on. In this episode, we're going to uh, kind of stop and revisit some films we already did episodes about, but we're going to talk about them sort of big picture. Taking a a shot at a little bit of a different different tack here, something we don't usually do. We're going to talk about the Avengers films with a little bit of hindsight. And and I I would say the three Avengers films we're going to talk about tonight... Controversially, one of them is not technically, for contractual reasons, an Avengers film. We're going to talk about The Avengers from 2012. We're going to talk about Avengers colon Age of Ultron from 2015. And of course, the Captain America, sort of in name only, 2016 film Civil War. Joining me to talk about these movies on the Summer of Marvel are the following wonderful people Moises Chuyan. Hello. I uh, can't wait to talk about the movie uh, where uh, robots attack uh, from Eastern Europe. <laughs> hmm, interesting. Uh, that sounds sounds like a, it could be a movie. Uh, Dan Morin has also joined this uh, this crew. Hello. Yeah, everyone's got a gimmick now. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> Did you bring all your arrows, Dan? Oh, I just said you were a Hawkeye. <laughs> oh, oh, come sorry, on. Sorry, oh. sorry. Uh, Dr. Drang is here for movies made in the 21st century. Hello. Hey. I'm vintage with slight foxing around the edges. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Nathan Alderman rejoins us to talk about these films as well. Nathan, welcome back. Hi. Does anyone have any orange slices? <laughs> <laughs> and Lisa Schmeiser is also here. Hello. Longing, rusted, 17, daybreak, <laughs> furnace, nine, benign, homecoming. Duh. Must kill <laughs> the queen. No, wait. That's. <laughs> A different movie. <laughs> there we go. I want to see how many of our how many of our readers are in the, are in the Winter Soldier army. <laughs> I, I was yeah. about to say I thought the last the last term was freight car, but I forget. Yeah. Well, she freight didn't car, say it. She doesn't train. want to activate us. Come on. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Safety. I'm saving that for the end of the podcast. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. So a big picture here. You know, again, we're not. This is a different kind of episode. I I watched, and I assume all of you went back and watched these movies. Maybe you haven't seen them for a while. I, I have seen them, you know, but not like super recently. And um, and I want to talk a- about this idea that the, with the Marvel Cinematic Universe of the big tentpole movies where all the characters kind of come together and there's a whole two and a half hour long-ish story that has them interacting with one another instead of sort of like being in the shared world, but kind of all in their own little movies. And we saw that that, that first in 2012 with The Avengers, which was directed and screenplay by Joss Whedon. And uh, then it went on. Obviously, they've made Age of Ultron, Civil War again, basically an Avengers movie. And then, of course, this summer's Infinity War, another example of that that we're not really going to talk about, although we could we could throw it in as well. Um, I I want to start with the kind of conventional wisdom about the Avengers. I mean, the Avengers made a billion bucks. It was the highest grossing movie of the year. Uh, it completely sort of changed, I think, changed the game in Hollywood in terms of everybody realizing like, oh, yeah, the, these superhero shared world things uh, have a payoff, uh, like a big, big, big payoff. It really, when you make a billion dollars, billion and a half worldwide, become the third highest grossing film of all time, you get people's attention because money 
gets people's attention. But going into it, I think the conventional wisdom was it's going to be a mess. It's going to be a disaster because how can you stick all these characters in a movie and have the movie work? And coming out of it, I think generally the the opinion, and I think it was the opinion of our panel, except for Andy Anaka, who didn't <laughs> like it, was that, um, that it was way better than it could have been uh, than you expected it to be because of all of the corporately mandated pieces that had to happen in order to make this movie that it wasn't just a total rough assemblage out of a bunch of parts that needed to be done for synergistic reasons that it actually kind of held together way better than it should have so what i wanted to ask all of you as we start this is watching it now six years later does that does that judgment hold up does does the avengers hold up as a surprisingly coherent movie given what what was required also considering now that we've seen many more of these same kind of movie which we hadn't really seen when this one came out so i just wanted to throw it out there lisa maybe we could start with you if you have a thought about that so i rewatched all three of these movies uh, in preparation for the podcast and the question i keep turning over in my head is how much of my enjoyment of the Avengers came from the fact it was something we hadn't seen before and it was something somebody pulled off really successfully and how much of that enjoyment is because it's a movie that actually stands up over time. Um, and it's just a well-made movie that, that you can come back to over and over on its own. And I asked the same question with Ultron and then with civil war, because each of these movies builds on each other, right? Um, you, you can't really have Ultron, without having the first Avengers movie. It just doesn't work. There's nothing plausible about it. Um, and I think the answer is, I have very mixed feelings about the Avengers as a movie now. And mostly it's because of Joss Whedon. And it's because I think he did great. I think he did a great job for what he was given um, to do. You know, when they said basically, hey, or take these, give us a plausible reason why these six people would all fight aliens to make it more difficult, one of them has a bow and arrow. And um, and by the way, you've got this source material with these three movies that have preceded it. So find a way to make it work. And Whedon's strengths have always included finding plausible ways to make an ensemble gel together and bounce off each other. Um, that said, in both this movie and Ultron, uh, the, the characterizations that he chose to write for those characters, I find very jarring now, especially in context with standalone movies and subsequent movies. And so it's a little weird to go back and watch it now and then realize that, you know, you're going to go, you're going to see, um, you, you see what's coming down the line. You're like, these are barely the same characters. Like they're played by the same actors and the actors are doing their best to try to have a through line of consistency, but it's a little weird. Um, the experience of going back to watch the Avengers the first time I could remember being thrilled about the experience itself. The movie, not, not quite as much. If I could uh, take a, a thread of what you touched on there about Whedon's strengths, mm-hmm. I think the Avengers specifically touched on his strength as a script doctor, where he was given this assembly of ingredients and told here, cook a meal yeah. and found a way to make it work. Now, if they had if they had really uh, been able to chart this stuff out with the benefit of hindsight I, I i tend to agree with you that it it kind of paints them into some weird corners and it's something that i guess when we get into age of ultron we'll we'll definitely talk about mm-hmm. with regard to certain characterizations where there are some characterizations like the avengers is a hulk rehab movie as much as it's an avengers movie 
and you had little kids coming out of it, huge, huge, huge Hulk fans. Mm-hmm. And previously, you couldn't give them Hulk merchandise. <laughs> Nobody cared about the Hulk, mm-hmm. uh, relatively speaking. Um, for everything that it was able to accomplish, it's interesting the series of new corners that they ended up painting themselves into with this one. I think it's also interesting with, you know, we talk about hindsight here, right? Like, you know, we have lived with these characters for so long, for six years since that movie came around. And those characters have existed in that shared universe in that same time. And so it was interesting for me to go back and look at their relationships and really trying to keep in mind that this is the first time we see these characters interact and their relationships are very different than from the way that we perceive them now, six years later, and those characters and what they've gone through in the intervening time. So I kind of liked that aspect of looking at the characters and seeing like when they're a little more... Uh, uh, you know, uh, tentative with each other or how the dynamics change over time as certain leaders emerge and personalities clash. And so it's not that they're the same characters because they're clearly not the same characters that we see in, you know, say, Infinity War or Civil War, but they are sowing the seeds and explaining why those characters end up in the place that they do, to Lisa's point about all these movies building on each other. So yeah, I, I understand that feeling, but also I think in some ways those characters weren't as well defined at that point as we have them crystallized in our head after 20 movies. Yeah, they think, the thing I also thought was interesting was you can tell which ones Whedon really likes writing for mm-hmm. and which ones he has no idea what to do with. Because, um, you know, Moise's point about it being a Hulk rehab movie, that's a really great point. And the Bruce Banner characterization in this movie and the Hulk characterization, those are both really great. Iron Man is fantastic. And then you get the sense that he was really not sure what to do with either Captain America or with Thor. Yeah, for some weird reason, Joss Whedon doesn't really take to writing uh, stories about really popular, handsome, successful, and confident people. <laughs> wow. <laughs> the, the, the bit where, where Captain America is just is just kind of being the wet blanket to Tony Stark and going, well, gosh, uh, don't you think maybe we should wait for Director Fury, sir? Uh, I don't know if that's such a good idea, Mister Stark. I mean, he just he just comes off as so completely divorced from the Steve Rogers from the first Avenger that that uh, it it was that that was that was one of the most I I one of the bits where I I definitely took what uh, what Lisa was saying with it with it feeling ill fitting with what had come before. To to that point though, I you know I I noticed that as well, and I agree that it's it's very different from the Steve that we know later. But I what I appreciated about it was that Steve's next move after that point is to be like, all right, I should probably check this out. Because it's like a little bit of him trying to get his bearings still after, you know, being frozen in ice for a long time. Yeah, and she and Shield is is all he has. Right. After after being uh defrosted. So it it's I don't think it's surprising that he is the good soldier. Uh, to right, start he's with. looking for order. He's yeah. looking for a hierarchy, and like yeah. to, to have that then later stripped away in the Winter Soldier, I think is even more damning. Then I'm, I'm I'm with you there. I'm with you there. It's mostly just like the dialoguing of it, where sure, it just sure. it mm-hmm. feels it feels it feels like weak dialoguing of of accomplishing that end, where yeah. Whedon's like, all right, uh, okay, here here are these three lines. Yeah. Good. Done. I mean, I give the I give the movie some credit too for what they do with Natasha, because prior to that. It was basically Iron Man 2 where it was like, oh, there's going to be a cat fight between Natasha and Pepper. And oh, she wears a cat suit. And oh, it's funny because she's a Russian and blah, blah, blah. And then in this movie, although I am not crazy about the way she's introduced, what I 
do appreciate now is how we see her work her assets. And I, and I don't mean, I don't mean like, Oh, she worked her ass. I mean, people like, you know, the way she, the way she uh, managed to flip around the interrogation in the, in the, in the first scene. And they're like, wait a minute, what do you mean? She's getting everything from us. And then the scene she has with Loki, um, terrible thing that he says about her aside, the way that she managed to lead him around because she had a bead on who he was in a few moments. And uh, I like that he gives her a tactical mind as a through line. And I think it's a great basis for what you do see in subsequent films. So, you know, I, I appreciate the characterization work he did there. I think it's um, in that Avengers movie. I mean, we can talk about Ultron in a minute, but I do yeah. appreciate that. I do appreciate the the groundwork that he laid in that movie for Natasha. That introduction scene is essentially a Joss Whedon co- calling card, yeah. though. That is that oh, is yeah. essentially a Buffy scene, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. is the woman tied to the chair who's totally helpless is going to destroy everybody else in the room. And that is that is right out of his playbook, which is why I am amused by it, because it. It that is why uh, it makes me chuckle. Is it's like, oh yeah, Joss Whedon wrote this movie. That's like his little again. He just left a little mark. Like, yes, it's me. It's me back here. But um, you know that that's it, and it lets you know that she's dangerous, which is good because you know she <laughs> later there's a scene where they're surrounded by hundreds of aliens on flying things and all of New York is invaded and she's surrounded by giant people with incredible superpowers and her big move is that she puts a cartridge in her handgun. Yeah. <laughs> and so they really need to like impress upon you the fact that she's impressive early on because mm-hmm. um, there is that moment where you, you have to accept that putting some more bullets in her handgun is equivalent to the Hulk smashing things. Which is, <laughs> pew, 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 pew. It's not. It's very, very, she's very good at her job, yeah. but you know, they, they have some real power level issues to, to deal mm-hmm. with. There. Looking at this movie now and seeing the only female presence being Natasha and yeah. Maria Hill, mm-hmm. th- this is very much a okay the boys are going to punch through their disagreements uh and decide who's going to be president of the student council um mm-hmm. and and it just it's it, it's almost quaint that that that's where it started from it's the classic stupid the, when superheroes meet they first fight and then they realize that's they're such on the a same dumb side. trope i dislike that trope so intensely yeah, yeah and, and yet uh, if here it's like well we got to do it well, you know you got to do it and then yeah okay yeah. so you do it and it's dumb and at least captain america parachutes in and says when when why is he using a parachute i thought he didn't use those anymore um mm-hmm. and he says you you people are dumb stop which uh, yeah. at least there's that this was the movie that actually made me like scarlett johansson i'd previously only seen her in films like ghost world and lost in translation where her performance was pretty subdued to put it mildly and i, I think she really works well with joss whedon's kind of deadpan style it allows her to 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 work that kind of deadpan aspect that she has in, in a lot of very nuanced fun ways and i think whedon gives her the most heroic moment in the film which is after she's nearly been turned into a fine paste by the Hulk on the helicarrier, she um, she is visibly terrified. No one would blame her for sitting it out because, you know, a giant green guy just nearly destroyed her. But she hears that Clint is there and she forces herself to get through the fear, get up and go after him to try and save him. And that's that moment stuck with me about her character. Uh, that was the moment that convinced me she could stand toe to toe with the other Avengers. She's also way better here than in Iron Man 2. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Because I think this is the best written Black Widow. I mean, certainly Ultron is not. Um, you know, she's she's okay in Civil War. And, How about Winter and, Soldier? 
Yeah, uh, soldier, she's good. good. She just yeah. she only has so much to do though. Yeah. yeah, Civil War, same. I mean, like she's she's fine in Civil War, but you know, I feel like this movie actually holds up pretty well, aside from the costumes, which are just god awful. I mean, Captain America's <laughs> suit is so ugly. Oh, I love it. Look, maybe that's why he's in such a bad mood at that point because he's like <laughs> Phil Coulson is not a costume designer, guys. Come I on, know, this, come on. But but I feel like this this works pretty well. The the finale has a great sense of space and geography, and has a great way of showing you the characters in relation to each other. And it's just joyous and fun. And a lot more of the fight scenes than not in this movie are tied to character. They've got some character aspect rooted in them that makes you care about who's punching who. Um, the the punchy punchy meet and meet fight then team up scene in the forest is not one of them. But a lot of the, the mid-movie action scenes when things are falling apart on the helicarrier are chosen so that you have some emotional investment in the outcome of the scenes. You want to see, after they've been fighting so much, you want to see Iron Man and Cap learn how to work together. After Bruce and Natasha have had that kind of weird tension between them, uh, you, you're kind of invested in whether or not the Hulk is going to smash Natasha, especially since their power levels are so mismatched. And then Thor gets to go after Loki after tussling with the Hulk, and, and Whedon has done a pretty good job job of establishing their relationship so yeah i feel like it more often than not it makes sure that there's some reason emotionally to care about the fight scenes which civil war does well and with one glaring exception age of ultron does not i love the clint natasha fight scene on the catwalk that they have in yes in the first Mm -hmm. avengers movie that is such a great tight scene and um i've actually rewound it and watched it a couple times to try to figure out all the sequence because it's it's just a lot of fun to watch. I like the fight. I hate the underscoring. The underscoring is like generic action movie, uh, like clanging metal stuff. It, it it's something that I that I feel like undercuts otherwise really good, really really solid rhythmic choreography. That that especially when you look at things like Justice League and various other movies that are trying to do mixtures of different levels of kinds of combat um, that, that none of them really get quite well. This one really got a lot of the close quarters, hand-to-hand stuff really, really well. I think one of the other things that's good there, too, is that these are the only two characters of our main characters who actually know each other, right? Like, they're the only ones who are right. friends before this movie. And so, mm-hmm. they, and there's a lot of weight to be done there, too, because they're also the two characters we probably know the least well, because they've only been s- side characters in other people's movies up to this point, especially poor Clint mm-hmm. Barton, who spends 75% of this movie under mind control. Um, oh. Yeah, so there's a lot of work to be <laughs> done. We learned a lot about him when he was in the hanging basket. Yeah. Can you, can you imagine? Sure. Yeah, the, the, that was a great scene. And can you imagine? You're like, I'm Hawkeye. I get to be in this movie. And they're like, and you spend 75% of it not speaking and staring straight ahead. And you're like, yeah, I think that is Joss Whedon again with a character he doesn't really know what to do with. And so he uses him on the other side in order to get him in the movie and have him have something to do. One of the things about the MCU that, I, that strikes me watching these movies back, especially these three that we watched, is how subversive they are in a way. Like, mm-hmm. it would be very easy to do the um, the superheroes are here to ensure a global order and retain the status quo kind of thing, which is often a, a criticism of the superhero genre and superhero tropes in general. But from the Avengers, so in the Avengers, there is a super shadowy, not at all suspicious uh, organization called the World Security Council that is trying to tell Nick Fury what to do and at one point decides that they're going to nuke New York, right? 
and the Avengers basically ignore them and they, they don't trust Nick Fury. Nick Fury has been building weapons with the Cosmic Cube, the Tesseract, and that makes even even Steve Rogers has that moment where he realizes he really can't trust the government and the military and Nick Fury because of what he's doing. And so there's this direct, throughout this film, the superheroes who are just trying to do the right thing are realizing that the people who have been put in positions of authority by governments or whatever that shadowy cabal is, I guess they're governments behind them somewhere. Um, those people are bad and the superheroes are good. And in, of course, in uh, Age of Ultron, we get more of that, obviously, in Winter Soldier. That's what that whole movie is about. And then, uh, of course, Civil War ends up being very much about the premise of do you go along with uh, these? The, the, I know I know we tried to nuke New York a couple movies ago, but now you need to take your, our orders. Perhaps I'm tipping my hand about which side I'm on in the Civil War. Anyway, I think that the, those themes start in the Avengers and that that, mm-hmm. I, that struck watching watching it again. It struck me just how like Nick Fury, we're supposed to be really excited about him. He was in the credits at the end of uh, Iron Man saying the Avengers Initiative. Ooh, it's exciting. And the first thing the movie does is say, yeah, he's taken this super dangerous thing and is using it to make weapons. And by the way, the world governments are happy to nuke uh, Midtown Manhattan if uh, if it were it not for Tony Stark being willing to sacrifice himself. That's pretty interesting, I think, that the movie places mm-hmm. the, the, the superheroes in opposition to authority. And to that point, one of the one of the initial things that that people complained about this movie is that it was too many meetings and not enough superheroes doing superhero stuff. But it was that core conversation between Tony Stark and Steve Rogers, uh, where you know the one's calling the other a science experiment, and the other's calling the other a man in a suit, um, and we know who we're talking about here. That that is the the crystallization of of that argument of who deserves to have their hand on the lever of power, uh, which I, I totally agree is, is the most interesting sociopolitical thing buried in the sometimes too brightly colored superhero costumes. Yeah, well, and it sets the stage for the entire rest of the Avengers, basically all the way through civil war is that midsection. And I don't think it was that well planned out at the time, but when you, but you don't even have to watch them right in a row. I mean, you know, five six years later, whenever it was that uh, that Civil War came out, you go in the theater and you watch it. And if you have any memory of of the original Avengers, you say, "Oh well, this is this is the culmination of that." You know, go get the suit scene um, in 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 the midsection of of Avengers, and it. And you don't need the rest of the movies for that middle section to work. It's sort of a necessary thing. One of the things about rewatching this movie, of course, when I saw it in the theater first, I was just sort of carried along with the movie and was not analyzing it or anything like that. I just enjoyed it. And I still enjoy it. You, when you watch it now, you know, third, fourth time, however many times I've watched it, you know, you, I definitely see the structure. I definitely see the mechanism that's working behind it, but that doesn't bother me. Uh, I, I kind of, I kind of, I, I admire it. I like the writing. I like the way the thing is structured. I know why the middle section is there. The middle section has to be there. Yes, there's no action in the middle section, but we're, and you know, it, it's a superhero movie, so there's not tremendous character development, but but the characters are developed to the extent that you would expect, and it just it works for me. This movie is the best of the Avengers movies in in to me and still is on rewatching. This episode of The Incomparable is brought to you in part by 
Linode. With Linode, you have access to a suite of powerful hosting options with prices starting at just $5 a month, and you'll be up and running with your own virtual server in the Linode cloud in less than a minute. Linode has hundreds of thousands of customers who are all serviced by their friendly 24-7 support team. You can email them, call them, or even chat over IRC in the Linode community. They know how important it is to get the help you want, and they have a suite of amazing guides and support documentation to give you a reference when you need it. Linode has an intuitive control panel that lets you deploy, boot, resize, snapshot, and clone your virtual servers in just a few clicks. I've used it a lot. It is intuitive. It let me do things that I was actually kind of uh, scared to do about this server that I have in the cloud. But the control panel makes it easy. And there's also two-factor authentication to keep you safe. Linode is great for tasks like hosting large databases, running a mail server, operating a VPN, running Docker containers, hosting a private Git server. How about your own podcast network and tech blog? Because that's what I use my Linode server for. And it works great. And Linode also, they're hiring right now. If that interests you, go to linode.com slash careers. Anyway, great pricing options available. Plans start at just a gigabyte of RAM for $5 a month, and they offer high memory plans starting with 16 gigs of RAM. As a listener to The Incomparable, you can go to linode.com slash snell, and you'll be supporting this podcast, and you'll get $20 toward any Linode plan on the one gig of RAM plan. That's for free months. And there's a seven-day money-back guarantee, so there's nothing to lose. Give them a try. I use them. I like them. I, I can't recommend them highly enough, really. Go to linode.com slash Snell to learn more, sign up, and take advantage of that $20 credit, or use the promo code Snell2018 at checkout. Thank you to Linode for hosting everything I do on the internet and supporting the incomparable. Can we talk about Phil Coulson in The Avengers real quick? Because I, I think he's the secret ingredient that, without which this film would not work as well as it does. Sure. Yeah, I just, I feel like he's the first human face we see in the movie, if I'm not mistaken. Maybe we get a glimpse of Loki, but the, I think the first human face we see is Phil Coulson's. And I just, I'm a big fan of the way Clark Gregg plays the character and the way he's written. He's so dorky and yet earnest at the same time. And, and I feel... He, he gets the wonderful big moment before, uh, well, actually right after his, his Whedon, customary Whedon impalement. But yep. without him, I feel like the end of the movie wouldn't have the emotional stakes that it does. I mean, great, we, we were invested in seeing the Avengers come together, but his death, as they call out specifically in the film, gives them a reason to come together. And, you know, we're not rooting for the Avengers to save New York. We're rooting for the Avengers to get Loki because, you know, he killed Phil Coulson. And I feel like, you know, there's Age of Ultron lacks that pretty badly. Um, it would have they needed a Phil Coulson in there somewhere. One of the things I liked this time watching it was recalling that the the storyline is not I mean, we get him he's very carefully placed, he's in the Shield facility, he he goes and visits Tony Stark and Pepper. Um, and then he's, you know, really an enthusiastic fan of Captain America and we see him on the helicarrier and that's all good. But the thing that really got me this time is the storyline could very easily have been Nick Fury. He's so cynical. He went to Coulson's locker and got his Captain America cards, covered them in blood and used them as a motivational tactic to get the Avengers to come together. But in fact, his last words are that basically they needed something to fight for mm-hmm. and and it's going to be me and i really like that that that's like his dying wish slash advice to fury is you know use use my death to get these people to listen to you and asterisk, that's what he does asterisk asterisk dying yeah. words 
Well, this shows a through line from Captain America to Coulson, because I feel like in that moment, Coulson is doing what he thinks Steve, Ro- well, rather Coulson is doing what his internalized version of Steve Rogers which would have done, which is to recognize that there are bigger causes. And if you can be a part of them, just be grateful you could play a part and and fight the good fight. So I, I like that scene for that reason, because it it resonated more with more than, you know, I, I watched you sleep. I've got your cards. <laughs> um, <laughs> Those, that, that, that was some of the best written dialogue in the movie. But this is, this is Coulson basically acting like Steve Rogers. I mean, his internal compass to that point was what would Steve Rogers do? And he showed yeah. you. And Steve Rogers doesn't have to do it because super serum and, and all that. But Phil Coulson is making the argument that ordinary people can internalize those values and, and uh, bring them back up in the most and be heroes. circumstances. Yeah, which yeah, is, exactly. of course, the whole point of Steve Rogers, mm-hmm. too, right? Is that he has those values before he's a super soldier. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. The, the treatment of Captain America is given short shrift for the heavy lifting that has to be done to get him from Captain America, the first Avenger Captain America, to Winter Soldier Captain America. Um, this this is the bridge from from the one thing to the other. And this is this is what allows you to go from the classic Captain America do-gooder, goody-two-shoes model to the doing the right thing and conscientiously uh, questioning what's going on and finding the way forward. And and Phil Coulson is 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 a big part of the glue that sticks the the first modern uh, modern era version of the character to the way that he evolves in the winter soldier i also like that the characters have at least most of the characters have arcs in this film they have real arcs they're different people at the end than they are at the beginning um, you know, Cap goes from a guy fresh out of the ice to someone who is at least starting to, to realize he has a place in this new world. Uh, Iron Man learns that there is something beyond his own ego and then will continue to forget it for the next few movies. <laughs> so does, does he? Does he really learn that? <laughs> yeah, he learns it and then he forgets it, which is uh, it's going to come into yeah. play again in Civil War. Um, Thor is present. Uh, Black Widow gets, you know, gets the, the hope that she can wipe that red out of her ledger. Um, Hawkeye has arrows and Bruce Banner, you know, goes from being a, a hunted outcast to Tony Stark's favorite science bro. Uh, to, well, to, to that point of everybody having arcs, um, the, the limited extent to which I even really want to get into comparing this movie to justice league is that in looking at the conundrum going into infinity war of what movies do you have to have watched for Infinity War to make any sense. The first thing people then think of is, well, which of these movies stand alone on, uh, you know, completely on their own really well to the point that you don't necessarily need to see the ones that came before it. And this is one that I think you could, you could just watch the Avengers without having seen the other movies that led into it and be totally fine. Um, Oh yeah. You feel, you feel from, from the, the richness of the arcs, to the extent that everybody gets arcs, because there's only so much time that you can share, um, to the extent that they get that time, you you feel like each of these characters that had a movie of their own, had a movie of their own, had a journey of their own, there's some shorthanding, and you can, you can go back and do the extended reading if you want, but you don't feel like you don't understand these characters, what's motivating them, where they're coming from. And with Justice League, you don't you don't have any of that feeling. It's the here are these intellectual properties. They're all stuck next to each other. We're just gluing them together and they feel more like living action figures than real people with real motivations and nuance to them, where 
again, going back to the Cap versus Iron Man thing, which we'll get into, I'm sure, more as we get into the next two movies, there there is that sense of of the of where each of them is coming from and how they are different. Yeah, I, I think this movie not only stands on its own uh, in that you don't have to see the, the previous movies, I don't think you have to see the later movies. You, you know, the, this yeah. it certainly this sets the stage, but this is a perfectly satisfying, I really like this movie, but this, this is a perfectly satisfying movie all Absolutely. on its own. It's done, it, okay, Boom, we're finished. They eat the shawarma. We're good. They we're eat the good. shawarma. They move on. That's we're right. Good. That's right. They're exhausted. <laughs> the best thing about that that scene, which is a, a a hilarious scene if you do stick all the way through the end credits. Um mm-hmm. yes, in the mid credit sequence you see it's Thanos, which nobody knew who he was, but now, you know, now now you'll be like, Oh yeah, it's Thanos. Uh, but at the end it's a dialogueless scene where they're just eating shawarma. And the best part of it is they are they, they literally they went and got shawarma after the whole thing. So they're exhausted. They're very tired they're slumped down and they're eating it's great it's just it's such a great chris, chris evans thing. chris evans has grown out a beard for another part <laughs> so he has his hands over his face covering the beard so you can't yeah. see him <laughs> he's just he's slumping i love it so much yeah i think i said this in our episode at the time but as someone who's played in like a full day ultimate frisbee tournament and you're just exhausted at the end you go sit out like with the rest of your team and you're like oh let's get some beer and burgers like that's exactly they mm-hmm. captured exactly what that feels like no one's when talking you're, it was just when you're out there into playing the ultimate frisbee like a hero for a whole day <laughs> I used to participate in the lifeguard Olympics and we used to have to do relay races where you drag people 50 yards, blah, blah, blah. How about that? Is that more heroic lifeguard racing? <laughs> Dan knows exactly how Captain America feels because basically when you're Captain America, you're playing ultimate Frisbee all the time, too. This is true. <laughs> <laughs> Back to, to the, the thing about, you know, the movie being a series of meetings and talking and not actually much superheroing. The, the thing that I think is what makes it stand alone so well, like Durang was saying, and makes it to where you you could, if you had to pick just one movie to see before Infinity War to give you some context, it would be this one, is that is that it takes that time with characters like in the original Star Wars. Yes, we think about it for lightsabers and X-Wings fighting TIE fighters and everything, but it's really, for me, the moments like the flight to Alderaan where you get to know the characters and you get a reason to care about them. Uh, and that's that's what makes this one really work for me. That and Nick Fury shooting a bazooka at a plane. Um, (laughs) Let's be honest. No, it's, uh, I I agree. I I think it's, uh, in in watching it again, it's, I think it's a good movie. I agree with Dr. Drang. But one of the things that really strikes me about it is what we thought as colossally complicated at the time um, (laughs) seems almost simple now because we are now in the era of these kinds of movies because this movie did so well. And, and it is the scope as ridiculous as the scope of this movie is giant alien invasion of New York city. It doesn't feel quite, it feels smaller than that. I think partially because it is about the characters so much at so many points. And it was the first time that a portal opened in at the very end of act three. And, uh, you know, there was a lot of explosions in a city. Now that happens in every movie. So, um, but the, yeah, I, I enjoyed watching it again and I do think it stands on its own. Um, and it, but it does, it has had an impact in all films that have been made since then. Basically this episode of the incomparable is brought to you in part by Mac Weldon, the most comfortable underwear, socks, shirts, undershirts, hoodies, sweatpants that you will ever wear. It's better than whatever you're wearing right now. And they're so confident about that. They have a no questions asked return policy. They are so sure you're going to be super comfortable in whatever you buy that if for any reason you don't like your first pair, just keep them. 
They'll refund you no questions asked. By pairing premium fabrics, meticulous attention to detail, and a simple shopping experience, Mack Weldon delivers a new level of daily comfort straight to your door. They make undershirts that stay tucked, socks that stay up, waistbands that don't roll. Everything they make is with premium cotton, blended with natural fibers, and their website is built to get you in and out as quickly as possible. They don't waste your time. I have so much Mack Weldon stuff. I started with a free pair of underpants. I'll be honest. They have a podcast sponsor. They got me a free pair of underpants. Since then, I have bought socks and underpants. I have a new uh, long sleeve shirt for the winter months that is super soft and nice. And I just got uh, a new pair of shorts, the Mack Weldon shorts, and they're great. They're a lot like the Mack Weldon sweatpants, which I already have, which are also great, except these end at my knees because they're shorts, you see. They also have silver underwear and shirts that are naturally antimicrobial, so they repel odor uh, with the power of science. And of course, they perform well. They're great for working out, going to work, traveling, anything you can think of. And you can get 20% off of your first order by going to MacWeldon.com and using the code SNELL at checkout. Thank you, Mac Weldon, for supporting the incomparable and, of course, for keeping me in shorts and underpants and socks and sweatpants. And the list goes on. Let's talk about Age of Ultron. So, um, time to do another Avengers movie. They, they, there have been some movies in the in the meantime, but it's time to roll it back around again to the big one. You're trying to follow up the one and a half billion dollars in the top grossing movie of the year. They bring Joss Whedon back. They have him do a, another Avengers story, and in this case, what we get is this story about well, it's about a lot of stuff, but it's really about this uh, this Sokovia um, where they're uh, they've been experimenting on people, and so they're the twins. Uh, uh, Wanda and Pietro, uh, and they're in the end. The the big climactic fight at the end is back in Sokovia, where the whole center of the city is lifted up out of the ground, and they have to try to evacuate people and fight robots and all that. And then the other piece of it is that Stark, Tony Stark, creates Ultron, who is a murderer bot, basically, who's in the internet, and and hit Ultron, uh, voiced by James Spader in a I I would say amusing performance, but what I will say about him is, you know, Ultron really, he tries, Whedon tries, but Ultron's not much of a character. He's more like a series of one-liners, I will say, than my opinion, a series of one-liners trying to kind of spackle over the fact that he's just a murder bot. He wants to kill all humans. There's not, there's not a super amount of nuance to him. Um, <laughs> even though the movie likes to try and act like there is, there's nuance in other places in Age of Ultron, but not Ultron. Ultron, you know, he just wants to kill everybody because he's mad at Tony Stark and thinks humans are a pestilence to be wiped out. And so there are many murder bots and duplicates of murder bots. And there are, as you might expect, a whole lot of set pieces in a whole lot of places. There's one in Africa. There's one in uh, Korea. There, you know, there's the Sokovia, you know, because also in fake from real countries and fake countries. It's all over the place in the globetrotting age of Ultron. Um, so watching I, I get the sense in general that this movie is not as as uh is not as highly thought of in general when people are tallying the MCU 
And in watching it myself, I can see why. I actually think there's a lot of good stuff in here, but the problem is there's a lot of stuff in here. This is the movie that feels the most completely overstuffed to me. Like, mm-hmm. it's th- it, I always say, like, it's like two movies slapped together. This feels like three movies slapped together, where there's just so many different digressions, so many different parts uh, of the of the plot that have to lead to a giant uh, action scene that then rolls into yet another corner of the plot. Um, but I don't know if that's the reason uh, or if there are other reasons why, why people feel this way. Or maybe you don't agree and you think that Age of Ultron totally holds up. Um, what what Who would like to go first? What does everybody I, I, think? I, I wanted to throw something out there. At just the, the context, as, as you mentioned, for this not being one of the most beloved MCU movies, I think that would be putting it lightly even. Um, a, a lot of people saw it the one time and they haven't seen it since. And that first viewing was on the heels of the Avengers being the big, huge, crazy movie that it was, and everybody having the expectations of this thing being literally the second coming of the billion-dollar superhero movie and finding a way to please them in all the ways that the previous one did. And I think for for the reasons you enumerated there, that there there is so much heavy lifting that it has to do and that it tries to do three movies worth of exposition and connective tissue and all that sort of stuff. I mean, it, rewatching it, it, it took, uh, it, it, it was, it was a real realization for me going, God, all that stuff happens. And then the vision shows up. Yeah. Um, yeah. There, there's, there's so much stuffed into it from every angle. And yet they um, still the thing- can't figure out what to do with Thor. All of that overstuffing, yeah. and that poor sucker is True. still left. <laughs> I am Thor. I must. I must fly away to have a vision with well, my shirt yeah. off. Yeah. The Hulkbuster stuff is where I really was like, you know, this is exciting, eh. but it's like, why are we here? Yeah. Why is this yeah. going on? You why know? isn't this on a background monitor? Actually, I I think the the Iron Man versus Hulk fight is one of the highlights of the film, and and <laughs> the hands down the best action sequence. Yeah, and I, I, I have a theory for why. Well, He's battling his friend, and he's trying really hard to reach this person, to reach the person inside the monster. And yes. he's still really rattled by what he's just seen. So he's trying real hard to manage his feelings while managing a public threat, while wondering what the heck they're up against. Um, on, to- on, on top of that, it's 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 a part of Tony's whole journey against his hubris, which to me is, uh, I, you know, I think people justifiably have issues with Ultron. They have issues with characterization uh, of various different things. But, but the thing, the thing that I like about Ultron is that in, in massively changing the comics origin of Ultron and, and centering it around Tony Stark instead of Hank Pym, they, they've made Ultron this not as funny, not as uh, nuanced, not certainly not as human uh, or humane um, mirror to Tony Stark's hubris and ego. And, and this this movie this movie having Tony Stark's ego as the main antagonist, no wonder there's a whole lot to unpack um, <laughs> because there's a lot there's a lot to that ego. Full disclosure, I you know I did I did not my time was limited. I could watch two movies, not three, so I skipped Age of Ultron because it's definitely the Good one that you. I had. I, I kind of dreaded it a little bit. So yeah. there are parts of this I really like. Yeah, there they are, are all character moments. That's the thing, right? Like that scene at the beginning with the party where they're all hanging out and trying to pick oh, up man. Thor's hammer. That's, That's a great. brilliant That's where the scene. hammer just slightly moves, moves when, when Steve tries to pick it up, yeah. like yeah. it's all glassy eyed. Like up. what? What? Yeah. So yeah. like there, that stuff is fantastic. 
fantastic. The effortlessness when Vision then shows up later on and just picks up the hammer. That's a so chill good. inducing scene. I have to say. I love the whole Vision origin yeah. scene, like where you see how the, how the factions split up. There's a lot of grudges that get enacted and then Thor comes in the as Frankenstein's like, monster thing. Yeah, yeah. I the, love the, all of that. Like that his, his sequence. pose when he comes great. out of the, the cradle is pure John Buscema body language, which I also really love. Yeah. And it's so beautiful. there's a lot of really good stuff in there, but it's, it's, it's anchored to this whole plot that at time meanders and shoves in, as Jason said, a couple more movies worth of stuff going on here. And in some ways it makes you want like, I don't know, just like a series of web videos of the Avengers hanging out, eating shawarma or what have you. Like in some ways that would be more fun. I had, I had several moments where I just kept thinking, I feel like before they went to shoot this, somebody just needed to come into the screenplay and again, that's not going to happen when it's the writer director doing it. I'm, I'm sure Kevin mm-hmm. Kevin Feige was in there saying, you know, what about this and what about that. But it's like something it needed to be edited. Like yeah. there, there, I just maybe maybe in a movie like this, nobody ever says, could there be a little bit less? But there should be a little bit less. Like there are too many digressions. Like when I complain about the Hulkbuster scene, it's not that it isn't a good action scene. It's that that it whole Africa digression is mm. totally unnecessary. And when you watch it back now, you can see the little things they put down in order to get them to go there and follow the kind of little plot thread excuses to get them there. But it, it, it's like one, there are several of those where it's like a oh, Really? They got this whole part now, and and it felt like there were way too many of those. So that that's kind of my big complaint is that it just should have been more streamlined. I also um, have an issue with the um, with the way Wanda and her powers are used, where like <laughs> she gives people weird, yeah, like she's telling her powers are everything. Well, what, what whatever is, what the plot is, what, needs them to what be. What do they say? He's she's fast. weird. <laughs> He's fast and she's weird. But it's like yeah. you know when she zaps Tony. It's unclear what she's done. Has she made him more paranoid? Has she possessed him like Hawkeye? Uh, you know, it's so unclear what she's doing there, and the visions that they have are long way too long and they're boring and of course famously the Thor stuff was inserted against Joss Whedon's wishes apparently because they wanted to set up more Infinity Stone MCU kind of stuff I will say it is great to see Peggy Carter though it's always great to see Peggy Carter it's also great to see Idris Elba if that is it let let us not forget Idris Elba's 30 seconds of screen time (laughs) throwing them in there for the hallucination part I kind of get but again it just it some of them are long and the Thor stuff is really long and then Thor goes and finds Eric Selvig and goes to a cave and takes a bath so he can see more of the same things and it's just like that's the kind of stuff that it felt like why is this in this movie uh, and, and so much of that to me ended up being Wanda who they, they wanted to make her a threat at the beginning but like I just don't it, 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 what she's doing there is never really explained it, we, it, it, you can mm-hmm. use it to explain behavior of characters but you can never really say aha he's doing that because of Wanda no it's just a thing that happens mm-hmm. like she literally kind of like flicks Tony on the ear and he goes what oh that was weird and then that's yeah. it it's very that part is very frustrating. Yeah, they to do me, a like, much they're they're much more consistent about it in if less interesting in Civil War, for example, where her powers seem much more mostly clearly defined, yes. but also just mm-hmm. less interesting because it's like oh she's got telekinesis, right? Like most, yeah, that's pretty much it. <laughs> it's like very flashy physics in Civil in Civil yeah. War, and here it's just kind of unclear as to the, it's the, whatever the, the plot needs and, her to be able to do. Uh huh. Yeah, yeah but that's and, sort of uh, consistent 
with the way the comic books have been with with the Scarlet Witch, though, I, I don't know what happened to her after 1976, which is when I stopped reading comic books seriously. But <laughs> she but married honestly, Vision. She yeah, yeah. Oh, no, I got I have that comic book, oh, Giant no, Size Avengers. Um, but, but that happened in 1975, I think, but, right. but, um, you know, she, she was always kind of a terrible character. And part of that, of course, was because Stanley couldn't write women and, and all of the women characters were terrible. You know, she's like Sue Richards, you know, oh, oh, I can't, oh, I can't put up the force field. Oh, oh, oh. Well, yeah. Wanda was always that way too. And you get a little bit of that in the first Avenger, uh, I'm sorry, in, in this movie, um, where she's introduced, where she's kind of weak. Okay, you, you, you kind of understand maybe that because she hasn't, she doesn't know her powers yet. But when you look at the two characters, the two magical characters in the MCU, God, there, there's just no comparison. Doctor Strange is so much better because we under, even though we don't really know what his powers are, and you never do, you get a sense that there's some structure behind his powers because he had to study them and there are these books and there's this training academy and there's that whole thing she just kind of has them and she moves her hands and things happen of course Mm -hmm. you know dr strange moves his hands too and things happen but it just seems different with him they don't they don't do as solid of a job establishing where her powers come from what her level of mastery or even understanding of them is they mm-hmm. they just leave all of that out so yeah. we have we have so little point of reference for so wait what are the rules or are there rules or what's happening because at least with all of the other avengers they're all self-made men and women in their own way because bruce banner is the hulk thanks to experiments his own experiment yeah and tony stark built iron man when he was in a cave um while you can argue that Natasha had no agency when she was in the Red Room, when she escaped and started working for S.H.I.E.L.D., you could argue that one of the arcs that she's had over the course of the movies is we've seen how she consistently advocates for herself and has reinvented herself to who she wants to be. You know, Clint chose to pick up a bow and arrow. Steve chose to have the serum. Thor made the choice to be the ruler or to be a worthy ruler of Asgard. Like the... and. But with Wanda and Pietro, we don't get a sense of anything beyond, oh, they volunteered for the experiments. But we don't find out, is Pietro fast because he's always been impulsive and whatever they did to him amplifies a natural tendency? Were these powers assigned randomly? How do they fit in with their temperament and their personality? We never get a really good sense of who they are as people. We, they're basically no. walking grudges and hot topic. And yeah, um, they're, they're, yeah, they're angry until, they, until she reads, um, reads uh, Ultron's mind. Which mm-hmm. she can apparently can read minds sometimes, but like I it guess. never occurred to her to do it beforehand. So, well, no, it's because yeah. because the vision is organic. Uh, That's the thing right. that pushes her. She finally gets to read his mind by what 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 That's he's right, putting yeah. in the vision, and um and then she realizes oh he wants to kill all humans, and then she just they just turn on a dime and they're like all right I guess we'll help the good guys and we're good guys now too. Which I also again it happens awfully fast that 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 happens. I I kind of agree with the theory that this is. Um, a difficult place to insert a movie in the overall storyline. And so it's like cranking up the difficulty level for Joss Whedon that much more like to how do you tell a movie, but it's not that movie and it's not this movie, but you've kind of, you know, so you're coming out of Civ- or out of Winter Soldier. So we can't the, really the talk about you S.H.I.E.L.D. Is, is do you really need Wanda and Pietro for the arc of the storytelling to go forward? 
Well, and and that's that's the issue here too, to a certain extent. And in some ways, after the Avengers, we just got ourselves gelled with like, oh, we've got our Avengers team. We've got this lineup of people that we've assembled very carefully over all More these years. More characters. Built all these movies. Let's change the roster of the Avengers midway through this movie. Basically, this is the worst part of the movie. I think this is actually by far the worst part of the movie because in a very short amount of time, we have all the farm scenes, some of which are not terrible. The the chopping wood and and how that is a all the tension between uh, Tony and Steve there is great, but like that happens. Thor going off to his pool of water with Selvig to find a hallucination about the Infinity Stones happens here. The uh, Ultron being in Soul uh, enslaving the lady who's inventing all of the tissue regenerating technology. That's not very interesting. And Tony going off to Norway or whatever to go to the like the secret lair where the all the internet runs through which by the way if you analyze the plot of the movie is the <laughs> single dumbest thing in this entire movie I, i'd entirely forgotten that <laughs> i i almost forgot about the elders of the internet scene uh Ooh. but it just uh, the, something that i noticed that i had not seen previously was the two scientists that he's not talking about uh talking to at at, at the nexus uh, one of them is taking a surreptitious selfie of the other one with an iPad. Um, and I just, I thought that was fun and ridiculous. Um, and, and the only thing about it that I, that yeah. made sense afterward. But the, that scene is literally there to spackle a plot hole, which is how do you mm-hmm. get Jar, how do you get Jarvis back? Where has Jarvis been? Why is it that Ultron hasn't been able to just launch all the nukes and kill the world that way? And so it, it creates this thing where Tony lures him out, but like, it's, it's just this is this is where the movie, you know, basically like there's a lot of setup and then there's a lot of resolution and then there's that middle part where it's like how do I connect all the dots here? How do we push everything along? And yeah, there's like a good 20 minutes where this movie is just in neutral and it's it's very apparent watching it again knowing where they're going that they're not going there for a very long time. <laughs> No, that whole thing is just baffling. This know? movie ends with a giant uh, battle with a, a an army of flying robots on a floating, uh, floating city that is going to get dropped from space to destroy everybody. And there are a whole bunch of different moments that happen. And the old helicarrier from the first movie comes out of mothballs, and they they evacuate civilians from the from the city and all of that. And you know, it's it, it's kind of sensory overload, like. And Ultron, again, Ultron, like, what is he? He's just a murder bot. His philosophy really is non-existent. It's just nihilistic. You can kill him and there's literally, like, literally there are scenes in this movie where you kill him and there's just another one. Like, there's a lot of them. And and they do this thing where Vision, like, shorts out his ability to be on the internet or something, which is also kind of an eye roll. But... I don't know. There are some nice moments up in the uh, in, on the floating city. There are there are some nice moments, but it is, I think, a pretty good example of the we have to have a global peril and just lots of things flying around and lots of noise and lots of explosions at the end of the movie. And uh, it's a bit it's a bit much. That's not my favorite part of the movie. The and end. this is why Civil War is a better Avengers yes. movie than Age of Ultron. But, but segue, well, I, Jason. Well, it's I, it's well, also I, not a very attractively the the fight scenes are not that fun to watch. The core 
choreography doesn't seem very inspired. Smashing robots. Really, uh, well, it's just the thing is, is this this and the CGI is good for what they had to do in the volume and stuff like that. But you watch it, and you can't help think, oh, they're you're you know, and you're like, oh, look, it's it's uh, Chris Evans twirling through the air, pretending to kick at robots, and oh, they the computer put a robot in. It's it's not. There's no um there's no stakes. compelling there's zero well, stakes. And there's no compelling visual style. Like I'm fine with a stakes free fight as long as it's fun to watch. But this is not fun to watch. It's just after a while it's like a screensaver. Although and, I will say when Wanda is fighting, throwing things around with her hands, that's visually very interesting, I think. Um her interaction with her brother is very good in those scenes. Um mm-hmm. Vision again, some of the new characters who we haven't taken out for a spin. I think there's stuff in Sokovia there. It's kind of interesting, right? Because we haven't seen what they can do before. And so it's kind of fun. But a lot of it is just super samey of like, yeah, okay, Iron Man is flying around and Thor is throwing his hammer and Steve is using his shield to smash robots. And it's not anything we haven't really seen before. There's so much of it that I feel like could be, could have been shorthanded uh, without without sacrificing anything. You know, I like the bit where we get the the kind of uh, protect the flag bit with all of the Avengers rung around each other yeah. um, and and jumping from one to another calling back to the first moment. movie. Exactly. I thought, I thought that was cool. I thought that was neat. But I, like to your point, I feel like there was, there was that extra stuff that just didn't work. One of the bits on, on the floating island that, that strung through to stuff that I, I, I was with Lisa on the first movie that I, I thought there was some really interesting characterization stuff that they did with Natasha in that one. And this one, it's like, it's like they grabbed a Natasha from an alternate universe. Yeah. Um, yeah. And completely, completely changed the game plan of what they were doing with her, where they were making her feel less of a woman, less of a person because she couldn't have kids and Ugh. because she could only be loved by a monster and just such incredibly regressive stuff that, is is just I, I I was I was I was trying to figure out why why this needed to be the fix if this was a fix for something why this needed to be the direction that they were taking a still one of the few female characters that they have at the center of this movie um, and it just it, it it just did not work for me and it didn't tug on any of my heartstrings and I was really glad when they made fun of the sun's getting low big guy thing in Thor Ragnarok. Uh, because I, just, I, I, I find it the most, the, like the, the, you know, the, the, the truly, truly it is her role as the woman in the narrative, the predominant woman in the narrative to calm the savage beast within of, of the alpha man. And it just, I just, it was just gross. And as, as, as somewhat overstuffed as bits of the finale were, it was, it was one of the biggest things that left, a bad taste in my mouth, though I will I will say I wasn't as negative on this whole thing as, as I think a lot of people were, uh, but mm. that, that really did leave a distinctly sour taste in my mouth. I think what's disappointing about Nat in, in this movie is that she is so good with Steve in mm-hmm. all of the movies. Yes, thank you. Is, and she is so bad with Bruce. And it's not because she's in love with him. It's because they just couldn't figure out what how to do it. Yeah. But she, she is a perfect friend uh, to Steve, playful and, you know, tweaking him, but, but loves him, uh, not in a romantic way, but definitely loves him and wants the best for him and sees into him very well mm-hmm. and, and understands him and knows how to, how to treat him. 
and she is, she just falls to pieces. Her character falls to pieces. She doesn't so much with Bruce. Mm-hmm. It just seems wrong. I like yeah. the the interactions. Nat, and Bruce, I was thinking about this in the first movie. I actually like the interactions she and Bruce have in the first movie. Yes, and yes, they're I think fine. they're they're really solid. And like she's she's kind of terrified of him, right? Like mm-hmm. rightfully so. Yeah. That first scene where she has to go dig him out in Calcutta, and like you know she's trying to be. And real he's nice, mad at her, good cop, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, she, he's yeah. mad at her, and she's terrified of him. Exactly, and like <laughs> and yet they take a sharp left turn with Ultron is the thing, and like it's like. They don't explain how they don't explain how they got there. Like, well, that's, that's the thing. It's like I have we, the issues. It's, it's like, like they take a, sh- a sharp left turn with just like, um, well, these are our two uh, odd couple single characters. Let's just yeah, throw them together. Them together. Well, when, when, when Linda Cardellini's Laura said that thing of, oh, you didn't notice that there was something going on with Nat and Bruce thing. I was like, oh, she's an Ultron bot. That's the thing <laughs> that explains so much. His mm. his family, they're they're LMDs. And these are the real screenwriter. Yeah. No, you're just seeing the screenwriter hiding behind there going, doo, 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 we got to make this make yep. sense, but it doesn't. Well, and then they throw it away. So, yes. uh, you know, when, when we get to, uh, well, Civil War, obviously, Bruce is not in it at all. But then you know, as in Infinity we, as we War, in Infinity War, mm-hmm. no, it's gone. It's not gone. That, that and, look and I that guess, she gives Bruce when he finally returns, that look, man, that mm-hmm. made that made the whole movie better for me. That one look said volumes for me, at least. Mm. On the whole, I'm like I'm not even I'm not even just just barely net negative. I'm I'm very much more net positive on this movie as a whole. And I, you know, the, not to not to make this a political show because it's not a political show, but everything I say has a certain amount of politics in it. Metaphorically, um, there there is something to the hubris of man resulting in an army of robots in Eastern Europe threatening the balance of power on the planet and the good guys winning. Um, that just, it, it made me like the movie more in retrospect upon rewatching it. Um, because it, it felt, it felt like a, a, a movie for our times, uh, looking at the notion of, in, in my mind, the antagonist, of the antagonist of the movie being Tony Stark's ego and hubris, um, look, looking at that and looking introspectively at the hard questions that we don't ask ourselves as much and that don't, uh, in, in some people's minds fit as neatly into a superhero narrative. Um, I, I feel like there's, there's so much, there's so much more to that. And it's not that the movie isn't messy around it. And, and there are loads of criticisms I could level. And there, there are plenty of, if I were the puppeteer controlling the strings kinds of things that I would have done different. Cause Lord knows that's kind of how I look at all of these. Um, but I, I was able to forgive a whole lot of that, and I was able to, you know, kind of like make myself a sandwich while they were at the farmhouse, um, and and be fine with it. Um, yeah, I think yeah. that's because I, I, I think you're right. Um, like that that theme is really good in this, but like everything in this, I, what I would say is I wish that they had identified that and said, let's make this about that and focused the movie because release the snell cut release the snell cut this movie does not lack ideas and uh and topics it lacks focus it just it just isn't about anything it is um and in some ways i think that's all rooted in the fact that this was about 
doing the Avengers again because it made a billion and a half dollars. And yeah. it, it it doesn't feel daring in any way because it is sort of trying to do the same trick that they pulled before and a little more focus. I agree. I think it's a huge missed opportunity to have this movie really be about Tony Stark. That scene where he says, we're mad scientists, like about it being Tony totally loses it. It's more of an Iron Man movie then, but I'd be okay with that. And having it be about that and Vision and Ultron as an AI and what happens to Jarvis and have it be about that. But that's there, but it's just there along with 90 other things, unfortunately. A lot of the problems with this movie stem from the fact that it's literally the Avengers versus Joss Whedon. Ultron is metal Joss Whedon. I mean, Spader is even basically imitating Whedon's voice. Uh, Whedon, Whedon puts a lot of uh, his own criticisms of the Avengers that they, they never want the world to change. They basically want to remain static in Ultron's mouth. And and I think this Whedon wanted to tell this very personal story about uh, creating something, letting it loose into the world, uh, worrying about what you've created and how you've unleashed it and what kind of legacy you'll leave. Um, and Marvel wanted to tell a story about setting up the Infinity Stones and the conflict between those two irreconcilable goals and Joss Whedon's need to be an artist um, really kind of brings this movie down. And one of the things I like about Civil War is that the Russos don't come to that movie with any agenda of their own necessarily. They're just there to tell the best possible story within the lines that Marvel gives them. And that is a great segue to talk about Mm -hmm. Civil War last here. Again, not an Avengers movie. And the reason that I slotted it here is that I felt like it fit better here than in our movies about uh, in our episode about the Captain America. I mean, Cap is in it, but it's an Avengers movie, Mm -hmm. except I mean, except contractually, I think they're they're contractually obligated for a third Captain America movie that probably had something to do with like Chris Evans's contract. And also mm-hmm. they don't they don't have Hulk and Thor aren't in this. So there's some reasons, but really it is an Avengers movie. This is the movie obviously where um there is a uh you know, they they take sides and there's a there's kind of an accident where Scarlet Witch uh throws an explosion to the wrong place and it blows up the side of a building and it kills some people, and this is the moment moment that uh that uh secretary of state ross who you may remember because he was in that incredible, incredible hulk. hulk movie uh he's now the secretary of state <laughs> thunderbolt that, ross that seems like a mistake they should not have done that but you know sometimes the president appoints appoints really random people to be Look, secretary in, of state w- Go figure. When you can't use norman osborne just yet uh yeah use just thunderbolt, Thunder, ross. thunderbolt ross throw him in there so um, they decide that they're going to basically like put the superheroes under the control of a UN committee, which sounds great after, as I mentioned earlier, the World Security Council almost nuked New York and uh, S.H.I.E.L.D. was revealed to be kind of taken over by HYDRA. Sure, all the through line of these movies is that overarching uh, control of superheroes by groups gets perverted, but uh, they're going to do it again. Um, <laughs> Bucky Barnes is, is framed for the murder of a bunch of people at the UN conference, including uh, this is our first Chadwick Boseman is Black Panther. His dad, the king, dies mm-hmm. in that explosion. He wants his revenge. They all go find Bucky, except that Steve uh, doesn't know that Bucky didn't do it, but is protecting his friend who has been brainwashed and all of that. And everybody is pitted against each other. It ends up on a runway 
in uh, in Germany, which is actually just like all C- CGI. And you throw uh, a couple but, cro- co- throw a couple bugs into the mix. Yeah, and then you know, yes, Ant Man appears in that. This is the premiere of Spider Man in the MCU, where he goes to Queens and recruits young Peter Parker. There's a lot going on here, and yet and, it all works. Um, Jason, this movie sounds overstuffed and frankly it, too it cluttered. It does sound overstuffed, but here's here's the funny thing, and then and then I'll open it up. The funny thing is the. Uh, obligatory heroes fighting each other happens about two thirds of the way through the movie and not at the end. And it, it does have stakes. There is a purpose to it. It's not just a misunderstanding. And then, and I think that, that this is the most um, interesting thing about this movie is in the end, the bad guy's goal is just to undermine the relationships between the heroes and the their relationship with the world at large and it ends although there is a punching fight between captain america and iron man at the end um it generally it is a very quiet ending and and in the final moment and i know it's a moment lisa likes a lot really the final moment in this movie there's some things tagged on at the end is that the bad guy having uh having done all of this tries to kill himself and black panther um, drops his need for revenge. He's finally found the person responsible for the death of his father, and he sheaths his claws, prevents him from killing himself, and says, "No, you're gonna you're gonna face justice, and then the time for vengeance is over." And it's kind of a beautiful, quiet ending, which is not what we've expected from movies like this up to now. And I think that it's one of the things that sets this movie apart. It's such a great moral referendum, too, because. The the ethos in the previous Avengers movies is much, oh well you punched Earth Earth punch you back and um, <laughs> in this one um, Black Panther is is like yes you you did do me a really great wrong and this and the wound of losing my father is never going to heal but killing you isn't going to be what makes me feel better and it's certainly not going to contribute to society to, at large and. It's such a contrast to the choices that Tony makes all the way through. Um, and this is not me going, bleh, Tony, because like one of the things I noticed when I was watching all three movies is Robert Downey Jr. plays Tony Stark as a man who's falling apart more and more with each film. Yep. And by mm-hmm. Civil War, it is clear that this is a guy whose PTSD is completely out of control and he is flailing. Like there's never any sense that he's in control of anything and he's feeling unsupported and he literally lacks the capacity to tell people that he needs help or to ask for help and And he's totally suggestible too like alfred woodard Mm -hmm. appears and says you killed my son and he basically walks into the room and says everybody we we killed her son i feel really bad and we should all give up now like he's just that's it yeah so so even so you know but even putting aside tony's ptsd which shapes everything in this movie the fact that he chooses to go one way when confronted with the person who killed his parents as opposed to what t'challa does um i think we talked about this on the slack too but i what i love about this movie is it points out how different types of leadership have different limitations and different benefits because t'challa has been raised in a tradition of statecraft and taking a long view and understanding that you're part of a river of history and you contrast that to Tony, who views himself as basically the avatar of the future, and his job is to bring the future to the present. And they have very, very different ways of dealing with the past, the present, and their their repercussions in the future as well. And and I, I like that a lot. I unabashedly love this movie, and I think oh. it's for a few reasons, which are, one, I do think that the moral quandary at the center of it is is a rich one, if only because 
you know, we've watched these characters and we, you know, many of us, I think, probably end up feeling much like Cap does, like, you know, these these characters are trustworthy. These are the people who should be making this decision at the end of the day, not the shadowy cabals. And yet there is still something compelling about the argument that they need oversight, because if there, you know, if there were a bunch of super powered people in the world, you'd want the feeling that somebody is keeping an eye on them right. and they're not just running roughshod. Mm-hmm. And that is compelling. Right. It makes sense generally, but not in the world that we've seen. I think that's yeah. that's. Right. Like we've seen that they are way more trustworthy than the governments. But sure. if you think about it, yes, might makes right. You lead that leads to a world that's ruled by superheroes. If we were just the people in that world who were the civilians, then we might have some questions. Now, in yeah. addition to that, I think that the fundamental conflict between Tony and Steve is really well dramatized here and, and full credit to both Robert Downey Jr. and Chris Evans, because there is just something and maybe it's because I've been witness to interpersonal conflict between friends like <laughs> it, it rings true to me. Like the idea mm-hmm. that you just get set in that and you dig your heels in and you both think you're right. And it leads to some really unfortunate consequences at time. To me, the airport fight, as Jason said, it has stakes and there is nothing I love more in that. And it's, is not more heartbreaking in the entire thing than Rhodey getting shot out of the sky. And that for me, I love that scene because both not only does Tony you know, go back for him, but Sam turns around. It is immediately. It's the yes. moment where you're playing with all your friends and somebody gets poked in the eye with a stick and you're like, oh, yeah. crap. We were not thinking through like what we were doing. We were being <laughs> stupid kids. and just, I like, did not mean for this to happen. <laughs> exactly. And yet it, <laughs> yeah. it's just like, you know, to me, it, it's very truthful in its dramatization. It's just on a scale writ large because of the size of the personalities in it. So to me, the central conflict, I know some people didn't like it. They don't like to see their 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 favorite heroes fighting, but it, it works for me. And, and it tells a story that's more interesting than fighting a horde of faceless robots that nobody really cares about. Yeah, every everything in this movie is driven by character. And Cap and Tony's arcs oh, yeah. go all the way back to their first appearances. You have Cap, the guy whose challenge has always been to stay the same as the circumstances mm-hmm. change around him and who always succeeds in that. And Tony Stark, the guy whose challenge is always to change, to evolve, to become a better person and who always fails and keeps making the same mistakes. I mean, the, the thematic writing in this movie is incredible. This is a movie about four men frozen in time. There's Zemo, who's always listening to that that voicemail. He can never move on beyond that last voicemail that his wife left him. There's Bucky, who is, was, literally gets frozen and unfrozen and frozen and unfrozen. And he can never escape the memory of the things that he was made to do. There's Tony, who we first see literally trapped in the moment that defines his entire adult life and kind of froze him as a snarky adolescent when he lost his parents and never told them he loved them and then of course there's cap who is you know watching the the person he Mm. used to be the world he used to have literally die off all around him and who has that tunnel vision where when the last thing that that is the link to the person he used to be is threatened he's going to go after it no matter what I just uh, every single fight, every single interaction in this movie is built on character. Uh, they they further characters, they develop characters, and they pay homage to what characters have done before. Yep. And mm-hmm. I mean, they even work in Spider Man and Black Panther in, in ways that that fit with the theme of the movie and stay true to the characters. And it, this movie makes it look easy, which is incredible. Yeah, I agree. I think this is the uh, this is the movie that you look at and you say, okay, we were impressed with the game that the Avengers played, but look at this movie, which is not even supposed to be an Avengers movie, but look at this movie. 
Oh my god! This doing. movie, this movie is able to exist because of the table setting of everything that came before it, and it's it's difficult to. I mean, I, 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 a common a common well, this is better than this. It's easy to say this is better than Age of Ultron, just as a preference thing. Where I have trouble making that comparison is saying, well, this is a better you know next chapter in the Avengers story than Age of Ultron because this movie wouldn't be able to exist without the play setting of characters and building that Age of Ultron did. Where this whole thing has become this big massive serial to the point that this one is so dependent on Age of Ultron that to to say that this one did Age of Ultron's job better than Age of Ultron is giving it credit for stuff that Age of Ultron, like it or hate it, as as much as you might uh, want to, you you can't you 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 can't uh, you can't do it as cleanly as you can compare something to the original Avengers. Um, yeah. It's becoming harder and harder to do that because there are so many dependent strands that are connected to everything at this point. Um, this movie is so directly uh, sequelizing the the events of Age of Ultron. It's it it's we're in this place now where just talking about this stuff, there are um, there there are dependencies laid into it that that haven't been there for franchises in the past. Where it's just here's Star Wars movie after Star Wars movie after Star Wars movie. Well, I think there's no question that there's a good movie inside the ideas of Age of Ultron. Age of Ultron just isn't it. Just isn't yeah. that movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and so yeah, so the, the, you know the the things about making Ultron and so on come out and and are sort of the subtext of this movie so you know the idea if if you read the plot of age of age of ultron i think you're good to 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 watch civil war Mm -hmm. civil war i think is a remarkable movie for a superhero movie in that it doesn't have superhero movies so much uh, other than this one so much depend on the quality of the villain and the quality of a supervillain in particular and this movie does not have a supervillain uh, one of the reasons Ultron is, I think, not a good movie is because I don't think the villain is any good. Um, and there are too many of them. This movie, Zemo does the manipulation behind the scenes and or in front of us, but behind the scenes of the of, of the main characters. And so the gets the main characters to fight against one another. So but there's no, they're not fighting some horrible thing that's threatening the earth it's, it's internal except except themselves and of course they are threatening and they are threatening the earth that's the whole, that's the whole point it's worse because zemo uses their vulnerabilities against each other it's amazing sure. how deftly he plays them and and it's a follow on to uh, winter soldier which is also mm-hmm. about fighting your own institutions and coming to grips with yourself because there's no real supervillain in winter soldier either like Bucky sort of, but Bucky's is kind of a pawn in all of them. So to me, you know, like I think it's yeah, an the interesting antagonist of winter soldier is Hydra. Yeah, exactly. Which is, yeah. which is our own fault, right? Like it's but our, Bucky, it's but the, Bucky's it's a surrogate because for of a lack of vigilance and a lack of, and, and a rising complacency. You but know? it's, it's interesting how the Captain America's de- Captain America films, or at least two and three deal with these internal problems as opposed to, you know, in stark contrast, the Avengers, which deal with external threats to the Avengers, right? Like even Infinity War, yeah. if you lump that in, these are bad guys coming from the outside and our, our teams have to turn, you know, band together and fight them off. Whereas in, in Winter Soldier and in Civil War, we're dealing with the more sophisticated, more nuanced complications that somebody else is setting into motion, but really just sort of judo, you know, using our, our strength against us. Yeah, I will say I, I disagree 
with the notion that uh, every time the superior agency gets involved, things go awry. Um, because although, yes, when S.H.I.E.L.D. is the superior agency, uh, yeah, things go awry. And when the World Council, whatever, what the hell is that thing called? World, World Security, Security Council. World Security Shadowy, Council. With, evil, with Powers yeah. Booth, who, of course, we know becomes Gideon Malik uh, and, and is a hydrate agent. Uh, you know, when they're in charge, but that's not really the same as the U.N. And we don't really get to see the U.N. screw up here uh <laughs> unlike in real life yeah we, yeah, we, well, we get to we get to see specific we, systems or, and organizations undermined that in in some ways are placeholders for real life organizations and in other places are are seen to be completely overwhelmed by things that um that don't exist in the real world that are you know meta human in origin or uh meta ai in origin or something like that where it, it isn't it isn't necessarily I, I wouldn't say that it necessarily is, is saying, well, you know, obviously, as, as you can tell, the CIA would never be able to handle this. So sucks to be the CIA. But it's also to Cap's point, you know, it's a it's an agency run. It's even though it is, I agree with with Dr. Drang's point about like this is an agency that has a lot more transparency than the World Security mm -hmm. Council or S.H.I.E.L.D. That said, it's also an agency that's politically motivated and politics change and agendas change, as Cap points out. So you, do you want to put the your your you know superhuman forces at the disposal of of bureaucracy that is run by politicians and there's a there's a fair argument there again mm -hmm. yeah i mean thunderbolt ross uh tony stark comes to him and says look i have evidence of a credible threat and thunderbolt ross says are you kidding i'm mad at you because you put on your suit and played superhero and there was a big mess i'm not going to listen to you and that i thought was a good illustration of of mm -hmm. cap's argument in the film it is yeah. But 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 the but the under but the underlying thing is that don't the people of the world have a say, and even even Ross, who's a dick, mm -hmm. get, articulates this reasonably well, uh, and certainly T'Chaka, I I I think stands as, as kind of a moral a moral figure in favor of the UN uh, solution. You know, don't the people get a say? in what happens in when these things are battling on their territory. Yeah. And, and the, I actually think that is, a, I agree again, the Ross does a decent job of this, especially that first presentation of running down, like, here's what you guys did in all those movies. And we're not going to focus on the fact that you saved a lot of things. We're going to focus on the fact that you wreaked a hell of a lot of destruction while you were out there doing the right thing, right? <laughs> you just, you yeah. destroyed a huge chunk of New York. You destroyed part of DC. You dropped a city on like our, you know, country basically. Like I'd like that. I do love how Sokovia has vibrated through all of the different movies. Yeah. Subsequently, That's where the everyone's best thing like about age of Ultron. <laughs> Everybody is like, holy crap, we live in a world where murder bots can, can, can erase an entire country. Yeah. Yeah. If, if, if the first movie wasn't, the Battle of New York wasn't enough of a, uh, of a call to action, the, the Sokovia incident, as it were, I, I, I love that you, you feel that throughout the entire, MCU network of everything. No, I, so I feel like there's not enough love for Ant Man in this discussion. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I was going to so, say that the whole so, fight. So, no, the no, whole no, fight so, no, 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 not just the fight. I want to start with the, the scene where he rolls out of the van. Out of the van, sure. And, and Captain America, <laughs> I'm shaking your hand way too long. <laughs> oh, yeah. Like that whole scene, I was just. Um, it is a really nice piece of levity and kudos to the Russo brothers for actually making both that scene and the subsequent fight 
very funny and a mm-hmm. lot of moments where it could have been just really ugly and really emotional and way too tense and way too bombastic. And the fact that you, the, the fact that they start this whole ill-advised caper with Paul Rudd and, and, and doing his Captain America. Oh, I know you. You're great too. And then, um, Sam is like, is trying to play it cool and be like, we are not going to talk about how you got inside my suit and, and made me uncomfortable that way. Right. Um, but, He's so great in the battle scenes, too, because he's just so game. Like, all he knows is he's been asked to help Captain America, and he's going to do it, and Arrow Guy is going to shoot him into Iron Man's suit, and then he's like, it's your conscience! We haven't talked in a while! (laughs) And 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 then he willingly puts his life on the line, all, okay, I did this once in a lab, I guess we can do it now, let's see what happens. Um, Like... It was kind of his Avengers tryout, and you're like, oh my god, get this man on the team. He's great. He throws himself right into it when he needs to. Having both him and Peter at the same time, like on sort of opposite sides, does a a world of good in bringing this fight out of just the, like, as Lisa said, like the, like, total like dramatic slugfest into something that's a lot more fun. Because both of those actors, Tom Holland and Paul Rudd, are both delightful both of those characters don't really know anybody and what's at stake, right? They're just there to be like, oh, somebody asked, somebody really important asked me to come and help them out. Of course, I'm going to do it because I'm very impressionable. Peter Puppy, the adorable Spider-Man. He's so great in this movie. Every word out of his mouth, everything. Oh, yeah. No, I, lo- I love that, too. I just really love that Scott Lang is is like, okay. And then when he's in prison, he actually handles it better than anybody else who's been thrown behind bars there, too. And... Uh, because he's, he's used to he's it. Next con, yeah. Well, that's the thing is, is that's such a great character note because, like, Hawkeye loses his mind, and and Scott is just kind of, you know, all right, let's get through this. Let's put our <laughs> and head Pim down. Pim told me to happens. never trust a Stark. Who are you again? Who? Oh, come yeah, on, yeah, man! Come on, man! <laughs> yeah, I know. I love it. So it's it's that, and then I love the Spider-Man scenes where where Sam and Bucky are like, there is not normally this much talking in a fight. Why are we doing this? Sam, Sam and Bucky as a whole are also just great. My favorite line still from this you. movie is always, "Can you can you move your seat forward?" No, no, yeah, no, yeah. They actually the look, just the, the look yeah, in, yes. where where uh, where Steve and Sharon kiss. And then she walks away, and then he looks back, and they're both, like, smiling and nodding in the car. Good job, buddy. That's great. Uh, Yeah, I also want to put a... a, Something I noticed watching this directly directly after the um the avengers was how much more dynamic the fight scenes are here and some of that is up to of course like the fact that it's you know several, several years after the avengers, i think it's just but, one year well after the avengers right you, yeah, you didn't right. watch age of Ultron, i i know, yes, I know. but is, like several years compared ago. to the avengers it is amazing like even that first scene in log in lagos is like incredibly close-up cameras um lots of great stunt work from you know scarlett johansson and chris evans like it is really excitingly shot in a way that the Avengers was a good movie and had good fight scenes and good stunts, but they really turned it up a notch with this one. I feel like and it just, to me, the great, another great sense of geography, um, really fluid movements, really just good looking all over. It's a, it's a great looking movie. Yeah. There, I mean, there are interesting twists on sort of the traditional car chase scene in here, two of them really, you know, um, 
And yeah, they're nice. They keep the cameras at the level of the characters. So you feel like you are right there with them. You're not at some Mm -hmm. CGI remove. You are in there and the camera is moving at the same speed as the actors. And also something that, that you don't see in Age of Ultron and you do to some extent in Avengers is that when the characters get hit, they get hurt. Cap gets bruised yeah. and beaten up. So does Natasha. And it adds a sense of weight and stakes that you didn't get in kind of the weightless fight scenes in Ultron. You know, Cap is getting banged up. Everybody's getting the heck beat out of them. And you care more about them when you really feel like they're in trouble. Yeah, in the first Avengers movie, at one point, I, there's, a, there's a shot where you see, like, blood coming off of Black Widow's face. And then a few minutes later, she's catapulting off of Cap's shield and jumping onto a flying hover bike. And, and I'm like, that, well, she, uh, she, she sure is tough to be able to manage her balance with what looks like multiple concussions. So the, um, um, the, the love fest here, I want, I want to, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to say something negative about the end of this movie. And I know why they do it. I know why they do it, but I actually don't like how, just how manipulative the reveal of Tony, Tony's parents being killed by the winter soldier is because it's that whole thing is just there so that there's a there's a punch him up between Steve and Tony at the end of the movie. Oh, and I hate that punch him up. I, I, I don't I although I appreciate that Tony is trying to hurt Steve and Steve is trying to not hurt Tony, and there's a few funny things where the he and uh, Bucky are throwing the shield back and forth while they fight him. It I, I feel like the movie has earned the quieter sad ending there. When Zemo, when Zemo is revealed to be kind of a fraud who's just done this all to sow division. Um, but there's the gotcha tape that makes Tony go totally insane and just say, I don't care. I'm just going to kill him now because he killed my parents. Mm-hmm. And I don't, I don't, I, again, nobody's shown me a videotape of my parents who I thought died in a car crash actually being killed by an assassin who is thought out periodically. Okay, fair mm-hmm. enough. So I can't say for sure, but it seems like an awfully extreme reaction and it feels really manipulative. And I feel it's basically because the they they wanted they just had to have the cap Steve knocked down drag out at the very I, I end. I get that, but yeah. I, really I just don't think the, it's earned. I really love the plotting on it because that that event comes back several times in this movie. And I think they do a nice job of red herringing it like a couple mm-hmm. times, right? Like, oh no, it's what, what's important is what, you know, Bucky got out of the trunk. Out of the right? trunk, yeah, sure. Like, and, mm-hmm. and they do a really nice job of keeping you guessing they're, you know, Zemo's going to thaw out these super soldiers. Why? What's his motivation? He's listening to that message. What's the deal? Mm-hmm. Is he just listening to a voice message from his wife? That seems strange. You know, like, I think it's really nicely plotted. I totally get your point about mm-hmm. it feeling contrived. And yet, to me, like, to Lisa's earlier point about Tony being, like, suffering from this terrible, like, you know, PTSD, essentially, I think that's just his snapping moment. Like, I think he just mm-hmm. goes, like, because... It's when seen, he like, says, he killed my on, mom. He killed my mom. That yeah. line, to me, gets that's, me. And it, I, That I, line got me, because it that just shows he's... It, it's, it's all, it's, it's like, emotion. one big trauma it's soup pure, now. pure traumatic emotion, especially after what we yeah. saw at the very beginning with him reliving that moment. Like... I think Tony is just, he's just so exceptionally damaged throughout the course of this movie that I kind of believe it. It does devolve a little bit, but like, I, you I know, really it, it was wrenching. I remember watching that in the her. theater and hearing people gasp at that reveal, right? Like, cause it's, it's really well set up, I have to say. I mean, they hint at it in the, in the Winter Soldier, but they only hint at mm-hmm. it. And 
I yeah, feel yeah. like re- re-watching these three movies, we're seeing the end of Act 1 and then most of Act 2 of the three-act story of Tony Stark. In Avengers, we see the end of Act 1. In Iron Man 1 and 2, Tony's mainly been trying to keep himself alive. Uh, he ends by finally doing an altruistic, heroic thing in trying to sacrifice himself to save New York, and it terrifies him so badly that he gets PTSD. He cannot handle the thought of a world without him. In Ultron, uh, and then here we see him making the same mistakes over and over as he's trying to, you know, he's always looking for the easy solution that will make sure that he doesn't die and that the world is safe, and he's always making more problems in that search for the easy solution where he doesn't have to grapple with his own problems. And then and finally, in Civil War, what impressed me is that all through this movie, he's really trying. He knows he screwed up in Age of Ultron, even if he won't admit it. And he's trying really hard over and over again to do what he thinks is right, to try and make amends. But again, he's not looking inward. He's not addressing the problems with himself. And because he doesn't do that, he ultimately fails. And so this is like his second act low point. And then in Spider-Man Homecoming and in Infinity War, we see him kind of trying to build up from this low point and maybe not make the same mistakes over again. I think that this movie also has a lot to say about absent fathers and the and, and what happens to their sons in a lot of ways. Um and vice versa because or or what happens when the the bond between father and son is ruptured because one of the biggest things that Steve points out is is Bucky is his family and he's going to choose his family and in the back of your mind there's the question would there be that relationship if Steve had grown up in an intact home with a father around as opposed to always having that absence in the back of his mind and always looking for some sort of um some sort of relationship or substitute for it and it's kind of funny when he when he quasi fathers wanda at the beginning they're in the meeting and they're showing all the footage of sokovia and wanda looks down and steve's like okay yeah that's enough and then again tony stark through all of his movies the damage that he suffered by virtue of being Howard Stark's son and and their wildly dysfunctional relationship, that's all on display everywhere. And he conscripts a child soldier into this at this point and unwittingly sets himself up as a surrogate parent figure, which gets played out in the movies subsequent to this too. So there's there's damage up and down the line insofar as Tony Stark and fathers go. We see that T'Challa loses his father and has to react to that. We see that Zemo is a father without any children left. And that's why he does what he does. Um, I find it interesting that they don't really beat you over the head with it, but it does show that the damage outstanding, like outstandingly talented or outstandingly influential people can do just reverberates through generations and, well, and shapes events to come. It's a not really to nice mention, point. not to mention has a deliberate effect on Tony and Steve's relationship. And we have a scene where Tony talks about, you know, Steve knowing his dad and Tony's like, I hated oh, you I because Steve, yeah. yeah, right. Because like Howard would just talk about how much he knew Captain America and how much he loved Captain America. Like Steve is the good son, right? Like he's the hero, the, who, he's the guy who went off to war and died for his country. Yeah. You're not so good. You're not so great. Yeah. So like yeah. that. There's you took a, there's my dad's attention. I didn't have any. Yeah. There's a brother relationship there, right? Like mm-hmm. these are two yeah. guys who are essentially competing for the same dead father in some ways. Even though Steve Steve doesn't, I think, see it that way. But Tony, you know, is always Tony trying to measure sure himself up to does. that. Yeah. Steve is like, no, he's a peer. And I think um, the thing that makes it weird, as far as Steve's concerned, is Tony Stark is now his peer, and Tony is his peer Howard's kid. It's it would be like hanging out with your kids' friends and being like, oh, no, no we're friends and contemporaries that's weird so you know there's a bit of that too marvel comic stories wouldn't yeah. be marvel comic stories without a heap and helping of daddy issues yeah yeah yep 
All right. Well, we have we have revisited the Avengers, and I would like to thank my cast, my very special group of crime fighting superhero something or other. Sure, uh, for joining <laughs> me here. Whatever. It's a special. It's a super team. Moises Chuyan, thank you. You know, just as uh, Marvel's The Avengers it was called Marvel's Avengers Assemble in the UK. The only thing I think the Avengers franchise is missing is Howard the Duck, or as he was known in UK cinemas, Howard, a new breed of hero. Mm, Fair enough, fair enough. Nathan Alderman, thank you. Well, whenever you need me, just call, and I'll be there. (laughs) Dr. Drang, thank you. Thank you for having me. It was fun. I, I go, I go... Thumbs up, thumbs down, thumbs up in chronological yes. order. If you didn't, I, I, if you didn't think, get that, I think I read the tea leaves there. <laughs> Lisa Schmeiser, thank you. I have a package for uh, Tony Stank here. Tony Stank. <laughs> oh, geez. Lisa took my Lisa took my line. Oh, and, sorry. Well played, well played. And Dan Warren, thank you. Oh man, um, we haven't met yet. I'm Clint. <laughs> I don't care. Thank you, Lisa. <laughs> And thanks, everybody out there, for listening. The Summer of Marvel does continue to roll on. And next time, I believe we are going to be talking about the Ant-Man. And the Ant-Man, again, with the Wasp. That's next time. But for now, I've been your host, Jason Snell. We'll see you next week. Goodbye, everybody. Goodbye.